From Washington, this is CQ on Congress, the nonpartisan source for in-depth analysis of Capitol Hill's policy debates. I am Sean Zeller. Of America's big cable networks, the biggest is Fox. Its primetime audience is as big as its competitors, CNN and MSNBC combined. Before Donald Trump was accusing CNN and the New York Times of producing fake news, liberals and Democrats were leveling the same charge at Fox for its conservative bent. Fox is emblematic of a more ideological type of journalism that has spread with the advent of the web on both the left and the right, making it harder for journalists to claim the mantle of nonpartisanship. To explore the changing nature of journalism, my guest today is Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night, an 11 p.m. news show that dominates its competition. Shannon marked one year as host on October 30th. Congratulations, Shannon, on that one-year anniversary. Thank you very much. I've been watching the show a lot, and I was wondering, you know, what you heard my intro there, what you, what you thought about it. I mean, do you see journalism as changing and becoming more ideological? I think we all have to be really careful because there's so many different products out there. Some are opinion. We're straight news at 11 o'clock. Uh, and there are those who are kind of muddying the water. And I think that makes it difficult for viewers sometimes when they see someone they've known in maybe a news role, or a straight reporter or journalist, and they're seeing a little bit more opinion from them. Right. Um, and I think that you have to choose one or the other, I think, if you're going to be completely clean in the business. And so for us at 11, we're straight journalism, and that's where we stay. All right. We have an election coming up next week, of course, the big, the big news around here in Washington. And I'm wondering, how much do you think with our bifurcated news these days coming from so many different sources that TV journalism affects the way people vote? I think it really does. And because so many of the big TV outlets do branch out now into social media and have a really strong presence there, whether it's, you know, for us, foxnews.com, all over the web and Instagram and Twitter and everywhere else and Facebook, certainly, and all kinds of different platforms out there. I think TV is not the only place people get news, um, but it's certainly the primary place they still get it. Um, younger generations will tell you that they get theirs from different sources. So we try to make sure that we flood the market with our information and our product in all possible forms that it can be digested. Um, but as much as people talk about over the last five, 10 years, the fact that TV won't be such a dominant source, um, when I get outside the Beltway and go visit people who aren't tuned into it all the time like we are, they still very much sit down at night and turn on the news, whether it's with their dinner or afterwards, and they still are consumers on TV, for sure. Right, right. I agree. And if it's, as, if it's so important a news source still, I mean, as a news anchor, do you feel an obligation to present the news in a certain way, in an even-handed way, mm -hmm. so that people are well-informed? I absolutely do. And I think any time that you would be one-sided about any particular story, you're not serving the viewer because our duty is to give them all the facts, all the information, all the viewpoints. On our show, a lot of times we use guests to do that and we'll have people on from different viewpoints. Um, I try to have a very calm, informative discussion. Sometimes it gets a little fiery and spirited. I think that's part of um, what happens when people are passionate on different sides of an issue. But sometimes there are more than two sides of an issue. We'll have three or four guests on. So I think our duty is to bring information and factual information to our viewers and then let them make their own decisions about how they feel about any particular issue. You had a huge uh, get, as they say, earlier this month when President Trump called into your show. How did you approach that interview? 
we didn't have much time. I mean, normally, you know, if you if you're interviewing the president or someone high profile, there are a few days in advance lead up to it. Uh, we often will brainstorm. Um, I, I would normally, you know, sit down with Brett Baer and other people in the news division, and we'd bat around stories and make sure we weren't missing any ideas. We didn't really have that much time. We got a call that night saying, hey, he'd like to call into the show in a little bit. And we thought, okay, well, let's scramble. Let's kind of, with my executive producer and a couple of other people, we said, what do we have to hit on? The Jamal Khashoggi story was very big. Um, other things that were making headlines. And so we just kind of um, threw together the best ideas we had. We thought we'd have him for 10 minutes or so. He stayed for more than 20. And we thought, as long as he's game to let us keep probing and asking questions about all kinds of things, we'll just keep asking. But it wasn't the normal prep we would do for a presidential interview. Right, gotcha. And one of the debates we have as journalists is whether we need to be curators of the news and challenge our guests and point out inaccuracies, or whether we should be neutral platforms to allow them to present information to the public. Mm -hmm. Where do you come down on that? Yeah, I think that's one of the trickiest things to navigate because I do a ton of reading and homework. I love that part of the job. I'm always learning something, um, but I'll have stacks of reading every day. And if I know a guest is factually incorrect on something, I feel like I do have an obligation to say, actually, that's not what this person said or that's not how this person voted. Um, that is part of my duty to make sure the information is factually correct. If they're sharing an opinion, that's a different situation. I don't feel any reason to question that. Um, if it's not fact-based information, then all we can do is let them share their side, have the opposing side, uh, and then let viewers decide about the information for themselves. Right. Now, I think it's fair to say President Trump has a penchant for saying things that are not true. And it's created a quandary for journalists. You know, do Some have said, we need to call him out as a liar. Others have said, no, we can't know what's in his mind. We can't say that he's lying. And some say we shouldn't even report his misstatements. Others say he's the president and we must. What, what's your assessment? That's there? tricky. I don't think that you can report necessarily. We wouldn't have time to report on everything he says, every tweet he puts out, um, because there's so much of it. But I do think that people have said he's not accessible. He is. He makes a lot of statements. And he's out there every time he comes or goes somewhere. He always stops and talks to the press corps. I think he very much likes that engagement. On our show, um, we do feel it's important to point out facts. Um, when something good's happened for the president or negative for the president, we report it. And what happens is we find feedback on social media. Some nights people will say, or on the same night, you believe everything the president says and you're carrying his water. On the same night, we can get people saying, like, why are you always beating up on the president, giving him such a hard time? So I find that a lot of it is perception. People, um, they hear through a filter that matches their own personal beliefs about good or bad about the president. But it's our duty just to you know, stick to the facts. Right. Well, on that interview, um, speaking of that, uh, the president made a big point of talking about how he wants to protect people with pre-existing conditions mm -hmm. as part of health care reform. And it struck me that there you could have interjected and said, but last year you said you would, you would sign the House legislation mm -hmm. that would have allowed states to impose waivers, which would have allowed insurers to charge more to people with pre-existing conditions. He also said during your interview with him that he was the Republicans were doing very well in the generic polling, which is the polling that asked people to whether they would vote for a generic Republican or generic Democratic candidate unnamed. And it, stru it struck me that the, even Fox's polling has had uh, the generic poll favoring Democrats by 7% mm -hmm. as of mid-October. And you didn't challenge him on those points. It struck me that a, a well, liberals could come in there right. and say, 
this is biased news. This is just more Fox well, I did uh, ask allowing him. the president to present information without a filter. I did ask him about the polling. I remember that specifically because it wasn't good. And I read him a, a headline that had been in Politico, I think, the day before about how the House was about to lose, the GOP was about to lose the House. So when I said to him, when you criticize these polls or sort of disregard them, are you looking at different polls or do you think the polls are lying? Do you think people aren't telling the truth to the pollsters? I mean, clearly saying to him, what you're saying doesn't line up with the headlines and with the polls of what we're saying or what we're seeing out there. Um, and I think he has a good way of dancing around uh, the answers and not really, um, you know, addressing that head on because he didn't seem to to really get into his theory about the polls. Um, he doesn't believe them. You know, he thinks the polls were wrong about him. And that's debatable whether you were looking at national or state by state polls or the electoral college versus the popular vote with Hillary Clinton. So um, even when you do confront him with something like that, um, I think that he very much likes to dance around he his own perception he certainly of the does. answers. I mean, one other thing he brought up during the interview, which I'm sure would have annoyed Democrats watching, is that phony paid protesters, that was the exact quote from the president, were causing disturbances at his rallies. And as far as I know, there has been no evidence that phony paid protesters have, have uh, attended his rallies or have been in any way part of the protests against Donald Trump. You didn't challenge him on that point. I'll tell you this, what we have seen is uh, when we were covering the Kavanaugh hearings, for example, there were people who, you know, we were startled when it first happened by the third or fourth day. We weren't startled anymore by the people standing up, sometimes 30 seconds apart, sometimes it'd be five or 10 minutes, but it was just this onslaught of people. We had people come to us with videos of these people exchanging money with someone outside of the hearing. We tried to track down these people and figure out exactly what was going on. And if people were indeed being paid to go in and do, it looked like that to us without being able to track back to the original sources, we couldn't verify that. So we have pictures and video that would seem to suggest that. Um, the president and his team have claimed the same thing about their rallies. I'm not there. I haven't seen whether people have been paid. Those allegations have been going on for a long time. So, so. there's evidence indeed to support the president's claim in your opinion. I don't, I don't know about the rally specifically because I haven't been there and seen that, but I can tell you what we saw around the Kavanaugh hearings. And it certainly left me with a lot of questions about the people and what appeared to be transactions going on before they were coming into the hearings. Okay. You're listening to CQ on Congress. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, NPR One, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with Fox News host Shannon Bream, talking about journalism and the way Fox covers the news. So President Trump, uh, let's discuss his relationship with the press. I mean, it's been very combative. He has called the press the enemy of the people. And many journalists have responded in kind, criticizing him in a way that smacks of partisanship. Now, I'm wondering what you think about how journalists should respond when the president questions their integrity. That's really tough. I think if it's a personal attack on someone, he clearly enjoys mixing it up. And I think some of those journalists enjoy mixing it up with him too. Um, the problem is they become the story. And I think um, that that may benefit the president sometimes because then there's a lot of attention on that person and what they may or may not have done. If they're reporting the news and factual information, he has no reason to go after them. Um, I do think he enjoys the sparring. Um, you know, I have seen journalists that have been berated standing in here in, in um, his events. 
I've been in places where people have come after us um, because we're part of Fox. And so I don't wish that on anyone. And I think that it's become a game almost for both sides in some of these disputes. But I mean, to me, if people are reporting factual information, there's no reason to attack them as members of the press. In one of your recent segments, you had Buck Sexton on. He's a conservative radio talk show host. And he said that media, not from Fox, but from other networks, he was very specific, um, had been fomenting the, a mob mentality among Democrats. And what do you think? I mean, have the media played a role, do you think, in the polarization that we're seeing? I think when you get to that line between opinion and journalism, that's where it gets a little tricky because people will see pundits or people on TV having arguments or saying specific things. And when it looks like advocacy, I think that's where you get to a dangerous line against advocating for against either party or the White House, the president, any of that kind of thing. There are going to be heated discussions, I think, on shows that are news or opinion shows when you have people of differing viewpoints. I try to keep that under control. It does get a little feisty, as I mentioned earlier. Um, but I think we all have to choose our words very carefully. I think we do have an obligation um, to be very careful to stick to the facts and to talk to people in a way that's that doesn't add unnecessary gasoline onto the fire. It strikes me that Fox has really set itself up as a counterweight to the other big news organizations where the editorial pages and the journalists lean left, the New York Times, the Washington Post, MSNBC. Do you see it that way? I mean, is that the reality? I think that we definitely, within our news division, certainly have very strong voices uh, that lean to the right or libertarian, um, like Tucker Carlson. So I think that's definitely a part of our program that people don't find other places. And so Fox definitely has a niche with some of those big opinion shows, Sean Hannity and Laura as well. So I think that that is, a, is definitely a choice to make sure that that's represented very strongly in our opinion division. I tell people too, especially when we have college students and journalism students and people who come in and talk about how things are different at Fox, I say a lot of times I think we do stories that other people won't touch. It's not even so much our take on a story, but just sometimes the subject matter that we choose to include in our programs maybe doesn't get attention other places. Now, I mean, you've, you've said that in contrast to some of the opinion shows on Fox, yours is a news show. But it strikes me that in presenting the news, there can be bias, that in the choice of guests, in the choice of questions to the guests, that a certain side can gain advantage. And here's an example that struck me. You had on um, recently the president's daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, and she was there to discuss how she sees President Trump as being very popular with women. Uh, why in, the, in that instance didn't you have on another guest to provide a response? We do that sometimes. We'll have solo um, Democrats when we can get them and we invite them every single day. And sometimes if it's a high profile guest like that, we'll have them alone. Um, a lot of guests, most of our debates, we pair people up, um, but it depends on the guest. If it's a Democratic senator, we probably would never pair them because we want to hear their voice and give them a forum too. We work very hard and once in a while we do get those folks. Um, but with her, a lot of times I find with that kind of guest, I'll play devil's advocate. And I said to her, listen, the president has just referred to Stormy Daniels as horse face and he's upside down in the polls with the women. We pointed all that out and said, how can you sit here and argue that the women do love him and are going to turn out and vote for him when he's got this statement that a lot of people found very offensive to women and the polls show he's not doing well with women? Yes, you certainly do play the devil's advocate at times. But at others, I mean, for example, Laura Trump said that the Brett Kavanaugh hearings had galvanized women to vote for Republicans. Now, Fox's own polling during the Kavanaugh hearings found that 50% of women who are like likely voters 
said that they would not have confirmed Brett Kavanaugh. And it also found that 41% believed Christine Blasey Ford, Brett Kavanaugh's accuser, whereas only 27% believed him. You didn't bring it up. Um, I'm not going to say that I, I had all the polling in mind. I mean, I try to do a ton of homework and have everything ready. Um, so I won't say I had those numbers in front of me and was ready to talk with her about that. But we have seen those numbers shift in the days and weeks since the hearings have been over as well. Um, I think that's a really difficult subject for women. But we're now starting to see that, that more and more people are trending towards um, having real questions about Dr. Ford and some of the other women now. Um, a lot of folks think she should not be grouped in with Julie Swetnick, who is now, along with her attorney, Michael Avenatti, possibly facing um, criminal charges. They've been referred um, by the, obviously, Senator Chuck Grassley, the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, so I won't say I had those poll numbers at hand when she brought up that topic, but we have seen shifting numbers in women who definitely are split on that issue. It's been a really tough one. One other uh, segment, another series of segments that have intrigued me in the last month on your show have dealt with the president's plan to send U.S. forces down to the border to pre prevent asylum seekers from trying to enter the country. And you've had done a couple segments on that that I watched. One you had, as your only guest, the Texas Attorney General. Mm -hmm. Another time you had the Texas Lieutenant Governor as your only guest. Both of them are very supportive of what the president mm -hmm. is trying to do. And I think they did a good job of presenting his, his view on that. But you haven't had a guest on to explain the United States' obligations under the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which obligates us to consider asylum. Why not? Um, again, both of them are kind of marquee guests that we'd have on all loan, uh, the same way we'd have a top Democrat on when we get them. Um, and last night, our panel is a perfect example. We had a mix of people, including an Obama administration official, um, who talked about the fact that she thinks the troops, it's a waste of time, uh, it's a waste of taxpayer money, and why she doesn't think it would be helpful, even though there were instances the Obama administration did also send um, troops to the border. But she talked about in this instance how she felt it wasn't going to be effective and it wasn't a good use of taxpayer money. So um, we certainly have that viewpoint on as well. Right. In your interview with Trump, you said at the end of the interview that you wished we could get back to a more civil debate in this country. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm curious what you think we as journalists can do to help get us there. I think by having different viewpoints on and showing that people can talk to each other, even if they don't agree on anything. We had a group on last week as well. We had two people on um, the sides of this immigration and refugee situation. We had a gentleman from, I'm going to get the title wrong, but human, uh, not Human Rights Watch, but something similar where they specialize in helping refugees. And he was one part of our panel and another more conservative individual. And we let them talk about this idea of refugees and asylum and what it really entails and the numbers that we get in this country, the small fraction that are actually approved and the number of people that stay in the states while they're waiting for those determinations. So I think having those kind of conversations, and there were people who said to me afterwards on Twitter and in person and said, it was so civilized. It's a tough thing. Immigration is a tough thing. Asylum, refugees. Um, but the fact that you have these conversations where nobody's biting each other's heads off, we're actually getting information about how the process works and the truth about really what will happen at the border when these people come. Um, I think that's our kind of obligation to make sure that people can have conversations. I think more of that would be mo most welcome. Yeah. I appreciate you coming on our show. Shannon. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please rate us on iTunes. 
For more on this and other stories, visit rollcall.com or find us on Twitter at CQNow or at rollcall.